Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. Later on the show, we'll be talking to author and New Yorker editor Jessica Winter. But like we do now every week, let's have a check-in. Hi, Kim. How are you doing today? Jen, I'm fine. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, when we were talking about what to talk about this week, I was explaining to you that I am beginning to feel like old lady dumb about slang. Yeah. Um, and it's starting to become a problem. It's particularly being a writer, but just like a human being, like on Twitter or anything. Like the other day I was about to use, I'm just starting to feel ridiculous. The other day I was about to use the word slaps. I saw it somewhere and I was like, oh, maybe I'll say it slaps. And I was like, I don't really know what that means. So I'm, I've reached like an age where new language is starting to elude me. How are you feeling about that? I, yeah, no, I definitely agree. I'm, I'm constantly Googling different acronyms that I see on the internet. And somebody had to explain what the word flex means to me. And I'm still not entirely sure I understand. It took me a very long time to understand what standing meant. But then yes. I, I also feel like I also feel like in if I if I try to know all this youth slang, am I am I like the the career counselor on Freaks and Geeks who's like trying to act like they're down with the kids and they're really not? No, it's. I, I know I feel that too or like the cool mom like it's gross right but it really is a mark of age because it's really the first time for me that I'm starting to feel like out of sync with new vernacular but the other thing is you have to be careful because it can just be so embarrassing and also a lot of times if you don't really know the language well or the origin of the language you're sometimes also appropriating language that you shouldn't be using like i remember watching white women for a while using a couple of years ago like on fleek and uh -huh. like a little part of me wanting to die inside right 
Right. But but it's a weird thing that like it just it it it's just a part of the culture I feel like is kind of shut off to me because it would be I would no more like use some of this slang than I would wear like a super mini skirt. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I totally get that. And I mean, I feel like it's for the kids. Let the kids have their slang. I like knowing what things mean, but I would feel silly using any of the slang I hear like my nephews using. Yes. Yes. Well, also just all the weird shorthand, like the way that they text with each other. That's mostly like acronyms and emojis. It's just like, yeah, it's it's a different language. It's just, you know. Yeah. I mean, I have, I mean, I'm just trying to, I have this nephew who's 13 and cannot believe that I've been on TikTok. Like he just thinks it's, (laughs) he thinks it's hilarious that I know what a TikTok video is. And that makes me realize that I am like, to kids, I'm pretty fucking old. So why even bother? I mean, it's nice to kind of know, but why bother with it? Yeah. Snapchat was where I ended. And I knew, I kind of knew when I was like sorting out Snapchat, that 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 was probably the last platform that I was going to figure out. I mean, I do love TikTok and watching TikTok, but I don't feel like it's for me as a person creating content on it. Like I just don't. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like that's for me. And that's a weird sensation, but equally like I'm excited about TikTok. Like, I don't want to be one of those people. Do you remember that? Like, Oh God, all of those articles. I think we actually had a friend who wrote one, all of those articles that came out when Twitter came out that were like, Twitter's bad. I'm old and I hate <laughs> yes. Twitter. <laughs> yes. Like, I never want to be that person. Like, I want to be able to appreciate it. And I I guess I feel the same way about slang. I want to be able to appreciate it, but I don't have to engage with it. So I guess, actually, it's not being left behind. It's being liberated from having to engage with it. Yes, let's put a positive spin. I like that. Can we talk about what we've been watching on TV? Because I'm kind of looking for something new. I just I I just watched again the first season of Freaks and Geeks which I just cannot recommend highly enough. But it's over. It's over. So I need something new. Okay, Freaks and Geeks is is the most amazing and I also love that and rewatched it a couple of years ago but I haven't rewatched since it was released recently but last night I watched the new Tina Turner documentary and it is incredible. And the thing is I forgot I remember Tina Turner from the eighties, like Tina Turner in the eighties was very much like a part of my world. And like, she, I didn't realize that her first number one record was when she was 45 years old, Hmm. which is so cool. But the whole thing is amazing because what I forgot about was how incredible she was like in the Ike years, because I think I shut that off because I knew he was such an abusive piece of shit Mm -hmm. that I never really went back and watched all of that. And this this uh, movie really showcases her and she is just incredible and her energy is just infectious. And what she kind of says, she's in this, this movie. And what she says is that this is it. This is her farewell to her American audience. She's 81 years old. And this is, this is her gift to her American audience. And now she wants to sort of quietly live her life. I think she's in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And also, by the way, it looks like a fucking great life in Switzerland, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but highly, highly recommend that. I love Tina Turner. She's a fighter. 
Totally, totally. And the thing was, what's so interesting is making this comeback at 40, in her 40s, right? And she has a lull, which I think a lot of us go through is that lull into aging when we're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then she just shoots right up. And why she shoots up, I think, from watching it is because she retains the determination of her youth, mm -hmm. right? It's not just like, oh, I'm going to get, I'm going to get knocked down and get knocked down and stay down. She's like, nope, I want this. And that, that, that momentum really builds in this film. So hmm. worth watching. Also her outfits are fucking amazing. And she has like legs. I'm sure she still has legs, like killer legs. Totally. And also Oprah's in it. And like, who doesn't love Oprah? Who doesn't need a little Oprah in their Tina Turner biopic? Totally. Or documentary totally. rather. Yeah, do documentary. The biopic's already there. But you know what? I think I might go back and watch the biopic because I also, I'd like a little more Angela Bassett in my life. That's right. I was about to ask you who played Tina Turner in that. It was yeah. Angela Bassett. Yep. I kind of want to go back and read I, Tina. Yes. I did not realize written by Kurt Loder. Yes. It's amazing. He's in this. Oh, and also, if you want to feel a little old, Kurt Loder, old. Oh, no. I know. I, I actually have seen a picture of him recently, and he, he, he got old. It he got old. Like a really, it, seems like, it seems like good. I don't know. He, maybe he's a libertarian. I can't. I can't. I, I, I don't want all the heroes ruined. Um, <laughs> but but yeah. Kurt Loder was like our Dick Clark. Totally. Totally. He really was. No wonder we all feel a little attachment to him. Yeah. Anyway, totally recommend this, and everybody should watch it. That's my opinion. Stick cool. to it. And, and, and Freaks and Geeks, I'm just saying, if you haven't watched it in a while, it really stands up. And the music, and the music is really great in it. I don't know how they got all the permissions they got. I don't either, because they didn't have a budget. But, yeah. And it's amazing how... All of them, so many of them went on to do amazing things. Like this was most of their first role. And that all of those actors, yeah. James Franco, Busy Phillips. Seth um, Rogen. Seth Rogen, Jason Siegel. Is that his first name, Jason? Yeah, Jason Siegel. And then wait, why am I, why can't I think of the main Linda Cart Linda Carlini. Yeah. Yes, who I love very much. She was really good in Mad Men. Years I later. love. She was fabulous in Mad Men, and she does not have the career she deserves. I don't. Well, she's in that Christina Applegate show that I tried to watch and was like, mm, I don't. know. Yeah, I felt the same way about that. Show. It was like stress. It stressed me out somehow. It stressed me out in a way that I don't like to be stressed out by television. I agree. I don't like. I have a friend who enjoys watching television that makes her uncomfortable and movies. Like I can't do it. No, no. And I especially don't like, a, I don't like a show where it's like, and everybody loves this genre, but I don't like a show where I'm like, is it real or is it not real? I don't like, like <laughs> I don't like magical realism in my television. Like I can't, I can't do it. I get it. I get it. I feel the same way. I'm super excited about this episode with Jessica Winter, who I think is just a phenomenal talent and a phenomenal person. Yep, I love this episode. Jessica was so smart and articulate talking about her book, which I absolutely loved. All right, let's, let's do it. Let's get into it. Our guest today is Jessica Winter. Jessica is an editor at The New Yorker and the author of the 2017 novel, Break in Case of Emergency. 
Her new novel, The Fourth Child, was released last month to rave reviews. Jessica lives in Brooklyn with her family. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. We are so happy to have you. So many people talk about writing a novel, especially as we get to midlife. How did you actually make this happen? So I didn't start writing my first novel, Breaking Case of Emergency, until I was in my mid-30s. I didn't publish it until I was 39. I had my first kid right before I sold it. And then I had my second kid right after I published it. And then I started on the second book. And I, I was holding a day job the whole time. And, and so this one-two punch of life changes, becoming a writer of fiction and then becoming a mother, it all happened in this big surge as I was approaching 40, which is pretty inconvenient, honestly. <laughs> like, like the second I figured out that I wanted to spend my spare time writing fiction was also the second I no longer had any spare time. Right. But in terms of making it happen, I know a lot of people swear by an hour every morning, no excuses or two hours every morning. And I desperately wish that I could do that because it's so reasonable, but I've never been able to pull that off. What works for me is hoarding time for a sprint. And a sprint can be you know, five hours on a Saturday when you hand your kids off to a babysitter. A sprint can be a three-day weekend in a hotel room where you hand your kids off to a grandparent. But it's these sorts of bursts of really concentrated monomaniacal work on a project followed by much longer periods of relative dormancy where the work is kind of percolating in the background. That suits my personality better. I don't know why. I think it's, it's partly because I have to hover and circle for a while before I land the plane. So if I do the hour every morning, I'm just going to spend 45 minutes dithering. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then like, as soon as I find a groove at six in the morning and there's a little person standing next to me asking for Cheerios. So if, if you just do the sprint in a bigger block, it gives you more of a margin for error. That's how it works for me. I don't know how it works for you guys. Well, I mean, one of the things I just found so remarkable about this, especially because you have two little kids, is I find writing to be such a submersive experience. I could never do an hour in the morning. I would just be warming up before I, you know, I'd be just warming up when it was over, the time yeah, was over, same, right? Same. And, you know, I think it's all consuming. I think it's, you know, in a lot of ways, a, a selfish act writing, you know, <laughs> and which is, which is antithetical to motherhood and, and also to having a job. But one thing, you know, Kim and I were talking about is how did you manage to inhabit the place of your work and the place of your life at the same time? Like, did you find yourself really distracted? Because when you do get in that submersive space as a writer, especially I imagine when you're writing a novel, it's, it's, it is all consuming, right? Like, did you, did you feel sort of a whiplash? I think you just have to be possessed. You just catch the fever and you enter the fugue state. And some of it really isn't down to willpower or discipline, which I, I'm definitely think of myself as deficient in willpower and discipline. You're just sort of in a trance. My first book, sort of wrote itself because it was so addictive and so intoxicating because I had discovered fiction so late. I just had so much fun writing that book, but I also didn't have kids yet. The second one, The Fourth Child, was much, much harder because I had one kid and then I had two kids, but it's, it's just a more ambitious book. It, it required a lot of research. It's just operating on more levels than the first one. And I think 
putting down the first hundred pages or so of the fourth child, I was just in a trance. I, I, I just sleepwalked through it. And when I woke up, I was like, okay, wait, this is insane. Writing a book is too hard. Please someone get me out of this. But I had sunk costs at that point. You know, I just, I just had to finish it. I would have been so ashamed otherwise. But, you know, none of my creative habits are recommendable to your listeners. You know, they're all based <laughs> in like shame and dissociation and hiding in hotels. <laughs> but that's, that's how it works for me. <laughs> it, it, it sounds a little bit like you... I, I hear writers sometimes talk about the muse running through them. Do you feel like you have times when the muse is running through you? Because that's what it sounds like, those, these trance-like states. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I, guess I could say that. I mean, I guess, I guess this gets back to the hour every day. Sometimes the muse isn't there for the hour in the morning that you get up and, and, and try to put your time in. I heard Vendela Vita on a podcast recently say that you you have to hold that space you have to sit there in your hour or two hours or whatever you've allotted every single day because you don't know what's going to happen and i think that's really valuable advice that's sometimes you can just wait for it to visit you but it it definitely for me to push through the first 50 100 pages of something or to push through like the outlining stage it, it's not just a matter of discipline and and strict allocations of time it's something a little wilder and more unknowable than that yeah I would say so and you know I think that what's interesting about particularly fiction or particularly something before anybody's going to see it right it's just yours and it's there is a it's not really self-care but there is a privacy especially if your life if you have children and a and a partner and or a lot of people in your life, and you don't have a lot of emotional privacy, I have found my work as a writer before I put it out into the world to be a really safe space for me and something that has almost been a nurturing thing for me. And I, I wonder if you have felt the same. That's so interesting because I, I think of writing as, as so lonely and painful at times that I, I, I'm realizing hearing you talk about it that I, I don't appreciate it enough for the privacy that it gives you and the nurturing space that it affords you. Yeah, I mean, with this book, The Fourth Child, I was working through a lot of aspects of my life and my upbringing, like the ideas of them. And the, the book isn't autobiographical for the most part but ideas that I've been thinking about since childhood in terms of adolescence and coming of age, in terms of the Catholic church, which I was raised in, in terms of reproductive rights, which I've been thinking about since I knew what reproductive rights were. And yeah, there are ways that you can't work through these ideas. You can't work through events or experiences that you might've had proximity to at an early age. You can't necessarily work through them through simply through journalism or through essays or through talking to friends. There's a way that they reassemble and synthesize and, and, and kind of transfigure themselves through fiction that I found as hard as it was to write this book, deeply satisfying and, and really illuminating of my own life. And I should, I should remember to tell myself that when I'm kind of dreading the writing process. So thank you for that. 
Jennifer. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't suck, but you know, it it totally (laughs) sucks and it totally is lonely, but it is yours and it is your loneliness and you being with yourself, you know? So that's, I'm glad I gave you that today. (laughs) I always, I always think, you know, I'd love to write a novel, but I don't have a fiction writer's chops. How did you, how did you know you had that? For a long time, I didn't. I, I think I was a latecomer to fiction because for a long time, I imagined fiction as coming from this very protean, magic, creative wellspring that I just didn't have access to. I always liked to write, and I always thought that I had some small aptitude for writing, but I was drawn to things like journalism and criticism, where the thing being written about already exists, and your role is to explain it or to interpret it. Fiction, by contrast, it seemed like way more of a blank slate. And my imagination on its own just wasn't powerful enough to fill the slate. And I think my attitude toward that changed simply with age and with time. Because as you age, you just acquire material, right? You acquire all of these ideas and thoughts and experiences that that can regenerate as something else. And maybe for others that happens at age 20 or age 25. But for me, for whatever reason, it just took a lot longer before I could look and say, oh, I do have a wellspring for fiction. I just have to start drawing from it. And and discovering that was really exciting. And now a word from our sponsors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. 
I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. Let's talk about creativity during COVID. You know, there's been this joke about how Shakespeare wrote King Lear during a plague. Did you feel particularly creative during the last year? Nope. I have not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, Amazing. I that that this is my answer. And you know, I I felt sheepish about this for a year now. Uh, maybe not. I didn't feel sheepish about it at first. I've, I've certainly felt sheepish about it recently, but I'm pretty open about it because I just want other people to hear that not everyone is, is writing King Lear during quarantine. You know, I'm a single parent. I have two small children. They are both in full-time school, thank God, but they weren't in full-time school the whole time. And I have a demanding job and the pandemic was the last, um, I don't know, it was the last domino. It was the, it was the last piece on the Jenga board. Like I, I just, I can't hack it anymore in terms of finding that spare hour a day or, um, and I certainly can't do the sprints anymore because who, <laughs> who am I gonna hand the children to? <laughs> so, um, but my, my position on this is that if your creativity has to hibernate for a while, I don't think any lasting damage is going to be done. You can find it again. You can open that closet door again and pull it out and it might be dusty, but it'll, it'll come back. I, I have faith that it will, it will come back. And I'm just trying to be kind to myself during this, during this time. I, w I wanted to talk a little bit about the fourth child. I feel like, I feel like we should talk about it since, you know, it just came out and it's, it's such a big deal to put a book into the world. It's so vulnerable making. And I wanted to ask you this, the, the, the book really centers around a, a mother and mother-daughter relationships to some degree, and particularly young mothers with daughters. Was that something you, why was that something you wanted to explore? The idea for the book came to me early in 2015. I had just had my first baby, my daughter. And after I had my first baby, I found myself thinking a lot about attachment theory. I was reading a lot about attachment theory because I wanted to make sure that I was attaching to my child, which is pretty easy to do. You know, you hold them, you love them, you change their diaper, you gaze into their eyes. But attachment theory is super interesting. And I, I loved reading all the literature on it. I also found myself, strangely or not, thinking a lot about abortion after I had a first baby. I, I think because, and this was a failure of imagination on my part, but I think I had to 
give birth to understand viscerally, not intellectually, but to understand viscerally just the violence and the horror of the idea that anyone would ever be forced to give birth. That was just, it was newly shocking to me after kind of knowing it in my head and my heart for, for my whole life. I just, I just found myself kind of walking around outrage. I mean, I was so happy to have this little person in my life and I was, I was so um, lucky and, and blissful, but sometimes it would just occur to me, my God, they, they force people to, to do that. How awful, like, what could be more awful than that? And these ideas about reproductive rights and about attachment were kind of swirling around in my head and they all, you know, probably pretty intuitively rested on this relationship between a mother and her daughter, who is also um, the, the oldest daughter in the book for most of the book is 14 going on 15. And so she's reaching an age where she's discovering her own sexuality, discovering her own creativity, you know, moving from girlhood into womanhood and her mother had her at a very young age as well. And so all of these issues and ideas and emotions are, are kind of coming to a head in, in these two people and their family. I, I really, I've, I really appreciate that. I mean, I am the, I am the child of a mother who had me at 17 and it is a very, having a young mother is a very intense experience. Even if the mother doesn't go through, through the kind of transformation that the mother in your book does. And I thought that you captured that intensity really well. So I just wanted to say that to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the, the transformation that Jane, the mother in my book is, is going through is that she had her first child as a teenager. She had to get married because she fell pregnant as a teenager. You know, she has three children by her early twenties. And as her children are reaching the tween and the teen years and becoming more independent, she's becoming more and more restless. Like, what do I do with myself now? And she, this sort of leads her to these two fateful destabilizing decisions. She adopts a Romanian orphan, Romanian child. This is in the early nineties when those institutions in Eastern Europe were opening up and she joins up with a local pro-life organization, a local anti-abortion organization. Jennifer, I'm really, I'm really um, glad to hear that the the book resonated with you because I I really was mindful that the book would intersect with a lot of different people's lives and experiences in ways that could feel really personal. And so it's always good to hear from people for, for whom it resonated. So thank you. You're welcome. What was it about the '90s that made you want to set the action, or so much of the action there? Primarily, it was because in April of 1992, in my hometown of Buffalo, where the book is set, there were massive anti-abortion demonstrations that are sort of lightly fictionalized in the book. They were called the Spring of Life. And there were these Christian pro-life organizations, such as Operation Rescue, that targeted Buffalo for these demonstrations because of Buffalo's large Catholic community. And as I mentioned before, my family's Catholic. I grew up in the Catholic Church. The early 90s were also immediately after the, uh, the Romanian orphanages had been exposed and many North American families were adopting those children. And of course, those Romanian institutions existed. They were necessary because um, contraception and abortion in Romania were completely banned, which led to a lot of uh, hundreds of thousands of, of abandoned children. And so those, those two 
events, those two historical events felt very close in my mind, both temporally, it was all happening in the early 90s, but they, they, they were all, they were all related to each other. They're all down to reproductive autonomy. You know, 1991 to 92, which is the school year when the book is set, that was my freshman year of high school. And I think I tapped into, hopefully not a, a nostalgia, but I just have really acute memories of that really specific moment in time. I think because I was starting high school and I was becoming really aware of, of, of the news and popular culture, I was just becoming more sentient about the world around me at that exact moment in time when these historical events were happening. And so I tried to tap into as well my own memories of that period, which are so intense and acute. I mean, I remember things that happened in 1992, or I think I do, you know, memory is really unreliable, obviously, but like, I, I, I feel, I think that I remember certain things that happened in 1992 that like, you know, I, I don't have that memory for something that happened last week. I mean, you're such a sponge at that age. And, and so I was yep. trying to capture that too. Well, I noticed also that you use music to help tell the story in The Fourth Child. And that made me think about the function that popular culture can perform in novels. Was that a conscious choice? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I didn't want the book to turn into like an episode of I Love the 90s. We're like, okay, now we're going to check in with what was on the Billboard charts in October of 1991. I really tried to pick my spots and make sure that, okay, am I describing this movie or this video just because I like it and I, I'm indulging myself? Or is it actually, is looking at this piece of art or this piece of music, listening to this piece of music through this 15 year old girl's ears, is it actually advancing the plot a little bit? Is it showing us how this person is coming into herself as a teenager or as a young adult? Is it, is it affording us some look into her psyche or her consciousness that we wouldn't be able to access if we didn't have the song as the vehicle. I just, I just really tried to be conservative about it. I mean, it was also just useful in terms of placing you in time. But yeah, I, I tried to make sure that every time there was a song or a piece of popular culture, it was somehow operating on like a double or a triple track in terms of how it was serving the actual story. So I want to talk about Breaking Case of Emergency, your first novel, which is a novel I really loved a lot. And in that novel, you write a lot about a very specific kind of toxic female workplace with virtue signaling female founders. And I think it was an issue you were exploring years before the stories that came out last year about places like The Wing, Refinery29, you know, Nasty Gal, et cetera. Was this something you observed firsthand or how... You know, you were really just ahead of the game in nailing down this, this really kind of toxic workplace culture. I think what I was most focused on with that book was, I guess, what I would call the feminist empowerment industrial complex, <laughs> which, which sort of predates the, 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 the toxic girl boss culture that, that you're talking about. But I, I think they're closely related and like, the feminist empowerment industrial complex is this very, I mean, you guys know what it is. It's this very white, very moneyed, very aestheticized corporate feminism that presents itself as lifting up women through rhetoric or through philanthropy. But it's just, it's primarily a vehicle for lifting up women who are probably already quite wealthy and empowered and are just trying to rev up their 
cross-platform synergy or <laughs> attract, attract some venture capital or something. There, there's a fundamental fakeness and performance to it. There's a really fundamental untruth to it and sort of denial of basic reality and denial of the systems that actually um, hold, hold women down, hold people down. And everyone knows it's fake. And I think if everyone's faking it, you kind of inevitably get toxic interactions and maybe a toxic workplace because it's just the bedrock pathologies involved. And yeah, it's, it's adjacent to the toxic girl boss phenomenon because the toxic girl boss would have aspired to be like the keynote speaker at the you know corporate feminism empowerment conference, but she can't because her employees sent screenshots of all her nasty Slack messages to like, L.com and she got pushed out and she's not around anymore. <laughs> but is that, was that something that you experienced? Were you ever a part of a workplace like that or, or you just came up with it? Because I mean, you really nailed it. I mean, I think I've had proximity to certain situations like that. I mean, I've worked in a lot of different offices and so you just pick up scraps here and there of, that personality or that absurd conversation or that, you know, asinine idea. But it was, I mostly just made it up the way one does. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there were, there were little bits and, and pieces and scraps of things over the years that, that made their way in there, sure. I have never been at a women's global empowerment summit conference. I've, I've never. Uh... <laughs> I can't believe how much you've missed out on the cacophony of just meaningless platitudes. I can't. <laughs> it's just, it's like um, owning your power, authentic change. You use the word impactful a lot. You know, you just have to say power over like power yeah. empowers power. And then you have to like, put like some feminine pronoun in like empower her. You know, oh, like God. <laughs> Inspire her. <laughs> That's very funny. So let's talk about the New Yorker. Yeah, you have a you have a dream job. I do. The New Yorker is fantastic. I can't believe I work with the New Yorker. Um, yeah, I love I love the New Yorker. How do you decide what to cover there? So I work almost entirely on the website. Once in a while, I'll, I'll do a print piece, but for the most part, I'm, I'm focused on the website. And, you know, I, I think that the, the selection process and the editing process there is, is probably not much different than any other place. You know, it's a permutation of things. It's, is there a surprising and rich central animating idea? Is there an irresistible central character? Is there a narrative with a beginning and a middle and an end? Are you telling a really good and specific granular story that is, is only itself, it's a totally one of a kind story, but it's also one that opens a lens on bigger issues. You know, you need to check as many of those boxes as, as possible. I mean, right now I have a bunch of long features, a couple of them for print, mostly for the web in various stages of development now that are, that are all about education. I'm really struck by how many education pieces that, that I have in my inbox. And that, that just reflects my own interests. You know, my kids were in kindergarten and preschool when the pandemic happened. And I've, I've been so perplexed and at times frustrated and often just inspired and, and gratified by the whole school situation. 
And I feel really grateful that I can just assign stories about it. You know, it's quite a luxury to be perplexed by a major social issue and then have the luxury to assign it out to a brilliant journalist and work, work with them on a story about it. I mean, that's, that's just, that's one of the best parts of my job. And one of the nice freedoms of the job is that as an editor, as well as as a writer, you, you do have the freedom to say, I'm really interested in this and I, I want to go deep on it. And you're supported in that. It, it reminds me of the expression, news is what happens to editors. <laughs> yes. It's all this very solipsistic autobiographical pursuit for me I, as an editor. <laughs> I know, but you make it work, you know, as long as you make it, you know, interesting to others. What, what do you still want to do? Like what you've done so much already. Like what do you still, what are still your aspirations? I want to write more books. Maybe not now. (laughs) 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 Like maybe when my kids are a little older and I have a little more bandwidth, I want to write more books. I have ideas for them. And I have, I really want to try something formally inventive. I, I really want to toy and experiment with form in my future books. I think, you know, both of the books that I've written have been fairly classical 19th century novels. And I, I, I want to push myself a little bit in that way. I want to raise good, kind people who make a positive difference in their world. That is the absolute first priority of mine for the next um for the, the imminent future for the next <laughs> decade plus of, of, of my life. And I want to find ways that, that, that I, I want to find a way to make sure that that part of my life, which is the most important, like how can that part of my life collaborate with the creative part of my life? You know, how, how can it be generative in a way? And like, how can I, how can the one accommodate the other, you know, I don't, I, I, I spent a lot of time kind of locked away from my kids when I was <laughs> writing this book. And um, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm trying, I, I don't think there's any way out of that locked room. I don't think there's any way to make it a more communal process or something. But I, I have found myself, you know, asking my six year old, like, what should my next book be about? Or, you know, <laughs> asking my four year old, like, if you could imagine the cover of my next book, what would it look like? I, it's it's all it's all totally impossible, I'm sure. But I just I just want those two parts of my life to to come closer together somehow. That that's my ambition. I get that so much. I feel that so much. I have really felt that with with motherhood. I really understand that. Jessica, where can people find you? They can find me in my living room, um, <laughs> where I've spent the last 13 months. My Twitter and my Instagram are Winter Jessica. And my books are in your local independent bookstore. And yeah. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Kim and Jennifer. Thank you so very much. I love this podcast. I'm just so thrilled and honored uh, to be a guest. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts, Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. Our producer is Natalie Rivera. If you want to support the show, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash everythingisfine. And be sure to rate and review us on all the platforms, which really makes a difference. 
You can follow the show's Instagram at EIF Podcast. Email us at everythingisfinethepodcast at gmail. And you can find me on my blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.